Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to the Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at the Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins coming out later this year. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at the Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer. We're joined this week by guest host Ursula Perano. She's a politics reporter at The Daily Beast. Ursula, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, Ursula, what would you say your niche? Who are you keeping an eye on for The Daily Beast? So I focus on the political left, so the actions mostly of progressives and campaigns and in Congress, but also in sort of how they navigate the landscape with the Democratic establishment, moderates, and leadership in and outside the halls of Congress. Well, it sounds like there's no shortage of stuff to cover there. I think we'll be getting into some interesting stuff this week. Before we dive in, I just want to flag for folks that enjoyed my interview last week with author Andy Kroll about his book on the Seth Rich murder. It's called A Death on W Street. If you're in the D.C. area next Tuesday, September 13th, I will be interviewing him at Politics and Prose, where he'll be signing books and all that good stuff. So if you were intrigued by that and live near uh, Politics and Prose, swing on by September 13th. Okay, first of all, Ursula, you cover campaigns. You may have seen this. The Republican Senate dreams, they're in chaos. What's going on? I mean, I feel like there's this kind of a fascinating story, and there's so many little strands to pull apart, but they all circle around the bald head of a one senator named Rick Scott. What role does Rick Scott have to play in all this? Yeah, so Rick Scott is the leader of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, and he is basically tasked with leading the fight to have Republicans take back the Senate. And sort of the criticism is that it doesn't seem like he's doing a very good job. He's employed a ton of new fundraising tactics that just don't seem to be paying off. The NRSC is spending money like wild, definitely outpacing the Democratic campaign arm in spending. And it's sort of combined with the fact that Republicans have not had great luck with very favorable nominees this cycle. There's definitely been reporting out there that McConnell has said that he's not as amped up about Republicans taking back the Senate, perhaps rather that he's not necessarily forecasting it as strongly because of candidate quality. And that definitely seems like sort of a... I have to say, this is so funny that Mitch McConnell's already so down about it that he's just like, ugh, I'm not excited about our candidates this year. He's making these comments in August. I I mean, is it a bad sign? I feel like the the stories we're seeing coming out are these kind of stab in the back stories where like the various consultants are like, here, they hired this idiot and he screwed it up, all this kind of stuff. I feel like this is the stuff you get after the big blowout or maybe a week before the election. It seems like we're getting them really far in advance. Does that itself suggest that uh, things aren't looking so well for Mitch McConnell and the gang? Yeah, I think it does. And you look at some of these candidates that are getting nominated like Oz, like J.D. Vance, like, like Masters, that just perhaps weren't the candidates that establishment Republicans were really hoping for, that they thought could really bring it home in some of these swing states and you have leadership like you're saying so far in advance being like mm, maybe don't get your hopes too high for after november that to me is showing that they have some sort of internal polling they have some sort of knowledge or expectation to say i don't think 
that this is going to be a blowout. And of course, it comes like during this year where it's supposed to be a red wave and the red wave is at least even in the House side of things starting to dwindle as far as polling and, you know, forecasts go. So I think there have been so many, I mean, these moments where people are kind of lay, laying the table to uh, to blame one another. These moments always produce these fascinating anecdotes. And so first, you know, I want to highlight the role Rick Scott has allegedly played in blowing this whole thing. New York Times had a big story over the weekend. I think the people might not realize the NRSC, the National Republic Senatorial Committee, their whole job is getting more Republican senators elected. And so they had this big sack of money. They had like $180 million going into the summer and midpoint of the summer. And Rick Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, he seems to have just blown it all. And everyone's like, where did the money go, Rick? And where it went is kind of into some interesting places. Number one, it seems like he blew it all on the kind of just getting like on digital ad campaigns to get donors locked in really early with theory being that we can then harass these people for months and months and months ahead of the election for money. But it sort of seems that that's not really paying off in terms of donors. The one I love most is this, they've been running ads just featuring Rick Scott. And you might say, well, in these battleground states, shouldn't we be promoting our Senate candidates? But it's like, no, you just get a big old Rick Scott in the mix. This is a guy who appears to be kind of laying the, the groundwork to run for president. Now people are wondering, I believe the quip was the National Rick Scott Committee. Yeah, absolutely. It's just that Rick Scott, A, not like this super popular figure in the Republican Party. So running ads with him is questionable on its face. And then on top of that, why not get more face time with your own candidates? Why not plug them more? And this definitely is a significant flop for Rick Scott, given that he is somebody who has known, has been sort of suspected as gunning for leadership at some point. And the fact that he's already having rips with McConnell with the NRSC stuff and a number of other issues like platforms he's tried to launch in Congress and that he's not doing a very good job, at least in the eyes of Republican operatives on this sort of fundraising and spending operation is not great for his long-term prospects in the party. I mean, Rick Scott's an interesting guy for the past few years. I mean, folks may remember he also put out the NRSC platform, which he kind of went rogue and it had all these wacky ideas in it, including this kind of Mitt Romney 47% thing that was like, these low-income households aren't paying any taxes. Let's make them pay taxes. And in retrospect, maybe making poor people, raising the taxes on poor people, it's not like the greatest campaign idea. And so then there's been a lot of internal Republican dissension over that. But at the same time, some people might say, don't blame Rick Scott. This isn't his fault. He's blameless. It's Peter Thiel who's making all these problems by picking and, and backing these awful Senate candidates, or perhaps awful, like Blake Masters in Arizona and J.D. Vance in Ohio. Ursula, what is the deal with these Peter Thiel candidates? It seems like they've been running into some trouble themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these candidates that Thiel is backing, it's sort of just like a modgepodge of odd, unusual conservative politicians, some folks sort of getting for the conservative populism route. And they are probably the biggest problem children of the GOP Senate campaign arm right now. It is the the J.D. Vances and the Blake Masters that are apparently not showing up enough on the campaign trail. That's been a complaint of J.D. Vance that they are not hitting their talking points well enough and that they could be vulnerabilities in states where Republicans were feeling pretty confident a few months ago. But of course, you get past the primaries, you see what you're left with. And Republicans, particularly in Ohio, has been one I've definitely heard a lot about, that folks aren't really happy with what they ended up with. They're supposed to be slam dunks and are sort of just pittering off the bat right now. So the Mitch McConnell and Peter Thiel have been kind of in this dispute, uh, as the Washington Post recently reported. Mitch McConnell is sort of taking a you break it, you buy it approach to this and saying, hey, you picked these guys. Maybe you could keep 
paying for them because we're running out of money. We weren't expecting to say having to spend heavily to win a Senate seat in Ohio. The Peter Thiel's argument for why he's not going to spend any more money on Blake Masters, I just find fascinating here. This is from the Post. He says, Thiel indicated he was not interested in such arrangements. These arrangements being like splitting the cost of the future ads. A posture, say people around the venture capitalists, informed by his approach of investing early and a belief that any more of his money would be used as a Democratic talking point. So he's saying, go to dinner with Peter Thiel. You know, he buy, he orders a bunch of appetizers, what have you. You ask him to split the bill. He says, no, no, I believe in investing early. I'm out. He heads on out with his checkbook, with his wallet. It's so funny that he's like, oh, you little brains. You think you're supposed to spend your money like this? My approach is not spending my money when I've, when I've uh, picked the Senate candidates for you. Another candidate, as long as we have you, Ursula, you're tracking that Pennsylvania Senate race so closely. It's Dr. Oz versus Fetterman. What is the latest in that race? What is the latest Dr. Oz blunder? Dr. Oz is just full of them. I objectively think that there's a, a decent chance his campaign staff, like somebody in the operation hates him. It's just, it's like such a uniquely... A saboteur. A saboteur. It's just such a uniquely run campaign. He's had so many blunders. But I will say today, he is actually having sort of a moment. The Pittsburgh Post Gazette put out an editorial from their editorial board, calling out the fact that John Fetterman has declined to debate, citing his stroke recovery. He has said he's still dealing with some auditory processing issues, among a few other things. And this has been something that Oz has really been doing digging into is the fact that Fetterman hasn't been willing to debate. Today, he showed up with Republican Senator Pat Toomey, who is the outgoing Pennsylvania senator that is retiring, making a point of it. And of course, Toomey has a more delicate touch. A big thing has been as a spokesperson that is sort of making fun of or criticizing John Fetterman's health, saying he should eat a vegetable or something like that. And Toomey is coming out with sort of a more soft tone saying, I totally respect that he is recovering from a stroke, but it does raise concerns about if he is going to be able to serve in the Senate effectively. And the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette basically echoed that saying if he genuinely can't stand the stage for a debate because of these recovery issues there are legitimate questions to be had about whether he can be an effective senator. And so I will say that Oz has flopped on so, so many things this cycle, but he is sort of having a little bit of a moment where it seems like he's refining his message here on Fetterman's health and sort of the looming concerns about that, and that it is striking a bit more with the mainstream. It is funny, these things where it's like Dr. Oz goes one long weekend without a blunder, and it's like, things are looking up for Dr. Oz. The thing that struck me most, his most recent one was when his campaign said Fetterman's stroke. They said, well, you know, maybe if he'd eat a vegetable once in his life, he wouldn't have had a stroke. I mean, what a crazy thing to say. That's like something at your Thanksgiving dinner table, you know, a relative says, and then they get like kicked out. <laughs> like a campaign thing to say, just very ugly stuff. But they keep finding fascinating ways to blunder and make more gaffes. Moving on, Ursula, are you familiar with the website Kiwi Farms? I am familiar with the website Kiwi Farms, unfortunately. Are you sad you lost your account over the weekend? Oh, yeah. I was a longtime <laughs> user of Kiwi Farms. I am a, a Kiwi-er. <laughs> Me and Noel are really close. I'm a big Kiwi head. Well, here's the deal. So folks may not have heard of this website before. Kiwi Farms is in the news because it recently got quashed. And so I figured now would be a great time to talk about the deal with Kiwi Farms now that it is perhaps departing the internet for good. So Kiwi Farms, interesting website. So it was a website devoted to... I'm trying not to flatten what its deal was, but basically it was a forum and they would harass people and they would kind of, I guess, internet stalk these people. It was not per se, it was not like the Donald that didn't have a like specifically always like kind of like what we might think of as a conservative valence. They, instead, they were obsessed with people they called law cows. And these were often internet figures that they would at the most benign level, just like 
very intensely follow their internet activities. And at the worst, they would dox them or allegedly Marjorie Taylor Greene just got swatted by someone from Kiwi Farms. So this was a malignant website on the internet, but they would follow these people called lol cows. It was often, this isn't really the case with what we're, we're about to get into, but it was often people who were kind of prone to big internet freakouts, which they would call the milk, like milking the cows because you're getting harassed by Kiwi Farms. And, you know, if the drama went dry, they would say this cow has gone dry. So, I mean, really, I guess the way I'm describing this, really not a great bunch. But more recently, Kiwi Farms has been in the news because I guess also I should say, like, ideologically, you could compare them to people from 4chan. Maybe if people are familiar with the website Encyclopedia Dramatica, a lot of just like extremely online people in in a way that I, I think has warped their brain. So, Ursula, what happened to Kiwi Farms recently? So basically, there was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this part, but a transgender political commentator, Clara Sorrenti, who had become like the latest target of Kiwi Farms and sort of had mounted a campaign saying that we need to deplatform. And Kiwi Farms has been sort of outrunning deplatforming on multiple platforms for ages. And they had sort of gone to Russian servers as sort of their last chance that place to go that perhaps won't kick them out. Moon saying that Russia was going to be the free space for them. And then they got deplatformed from there too. And Moon mounts this entire online rant about how Russia is not a free state as if this is new information. And very upset about once again being deplatformed, sort of forecasting that this Kiwi Farms community, if you will, is going to face the same fate as Achan or Daily Stormer, where it becomes very decentralized and sort of just falls apart. Right. So Kiwi Farms has lost their, after this campaign, campaign against them because of their harassment, tracing this Clara Sorrenti woman essentially across the world. She was in Canada, then she goes to Ireland or Northern Ireland, I believe. They were making all these doxes and these police calls, stuff like this. So the key was to keeping Kiwi Farms up was if folks remember the 8chan, when 8chan went down because it was hosting so many mass shooter manifestos, very similar situation where like many websites, they need the protections of Cloudflare to stop from going down for security reasons. And finally, after all this pressure, Cloudflare cut them off, saying there was an imminent and emergency threat to human life. And so with that, Kiwi Farms is down. So will Kiwi Farms come back? What's your take, Ursula? I think that they're going to be facing a really difficult outlook from here on out. To become decentralized to sort of be in this state that other far-right forums have faced where you're constantly domain hopping and it becomes very untraceable where your site and where you're supposed to log on to be a part of the Kiwi Times and whatnot. I think that makes it hard for the community to maintain itself. But of course, the sentiment's still there and you can have groups that become decentralized. So I think that perhaps it's not as organized as it once was organized being a generous word here, but I don't think it's going to necessarily disappear or at least the the mindset and sort of the mentality, the group that's formed around it, I think is they're going to keep kiwiing. The other thing I would say here is like this gets to a larger thing, which is sort of the harassment and the terrorizing of people who participate in public life in ways that random internet denizens don't like. And so the obvious example here is all these kiwi farms people going after any sort of visible trans person online, whether it's Claire Sorrenti here, there was a viral thread about about a trans child who was on the cover of a magazine and the way Kiwi Farms terrorized their family. This is something we're also seeing elsewhere, right? I mean, we're seeing libs of TikTok promoting harassment of hospitals that give gender transition surgery to children. And then ultimately, one of these hospitals gets a bomb threat. So increasingly, we're seeing these kind of internet harassment moms are trying to keep people from being visible in any way. And, and the idea being that, well, it's probably easier for myself and my family just to stay quiet. And I know personally that people at the Daily Beast have written about Kiwi Farms in sort of a glancing way. And then suddenly you start getting these threats and people saying, oh, we're going to dock to you. We're going to dock to your family, stuff like that. So Kiwi Farms, for now, good riddance. 
That's what I say. So, Will, who's our guest this week? All right, this week we've got Philip Bump. He's a national correspondent for the Washington Post. He's a big numbers guy, which is something I'm very much not. I thought it'd be useful to have him on. His big thing lately has been digging into Republican claims of voter fraud. He's become a sort of bet noir for Dinesh D'Souza and the 2000 Mules because he keeps proving over and over that it's absolute nonsense. I think Dinesh has challenged him to a debate. They've really gotten into it, and Philip has remained unflappable. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. in the case, in the face of all these challenges and all these just really obvious lies coming from the right. So I'm excited to talk with him. Fever dreams like all Daily Beast journalism exist because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. This week on Fever Dreams, our guest is Philip Bump. He's a national correspondent for The Washington Post and an overall numbers guy. He's digging into the numbers, including on these election fraud conspiracy theories and deniers. Philip, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, sir. So we got a little breaking news right now. Cooey Griffin, a January 6th guy and a, I believe, county commissioner in New Mexico, has just been removed from office. Philip, you've done a lot of investigation into this guy. This is the kind of lead cowboy for Trump. What is Cooey Griffin's story and what is happening to him now? Yeah, so he's he's this really interesting figure from the standpoint that he very much bought into Donald Trump's rhetoric. He's a huge supporter of Donald Trump, but he really shows the challenge that we have with people who believe that the election was stolen holding public office. He's one of three county commissioners in Otero County, New Mexico, which is a place that overwhelmingly went for Donald Trump. But Cooey Griffin has been a leading voice in arguing that somehow the vote there was still suspect in 2020. He helped push them to do an Arizona-style audit in his county, which completely flamed out, as these things do. He then also was one of the people who voted to block the certification of the election results, not from 2020, but this year's primary election in Otero County, because he's promoting this idea that the election itself can't be trusted. It's totally ridiculous, but it shows. He's one of three people with power in that county commission. He leveraged that power to try and obstruct the Democratic vote that occurred there this year. And it, it's really indicative of how these things can go south when people in positions of power believe these conspiracies. Yeah, I mean, he's a guy who's interesting to me in part because he does up until recently he held this position where it was he's like kind of far out even by the standards of trump people and yet this was a guy with an official job that he had some power you've done some writing about his attempt to i guess decertify this election expand on that i think that there are a couple of things that are interesting about him the first is not only that he has power but he's also just 
he's obviously a forceful voice on the county commission. I mean, if you go back and you look at the county commission meetings, which I've done, he is the person who's really driving this. It's very obvious. There are two other county commissioners. They are not sort of diehards in the way that he is, but because he's so firm, because he raises these questions, and very importantly, because there's no one pushing back. There's no one saying, look, this is ridiculous. You're full of, this is garbage. He, they hold these hearings where these election fraud deniers come, and they sit and explain why, oh, we have to do an audit because this is all suspect because of stuff that's been debunked hundred times, like Antrim County stuff, right? Like, which I, <laughs> you're obviously all familiar with. But like, just these, these ridiculous conspiracy theories have been broadly debunked, but they exist in this bubble. And he brings that bubble into this county commissioner's boardroom and they make these decisions based on it. So, for example, just articulating this argument that the election results were suspect in 2020 because of voting machines and yada, 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 that then carries over to this year. And the county commission had to be forced by a judge in the state of New Mexico to certify the results of the election, which only came because they refused to do so, not for any other reason than that they had become convinced within this bubble that the election results broadly were suspect. It's just bonkers, but again, very indicative. So now what has become of Cooey Griffin this week? So he has been a judge disqualified him from public office. The predicate for it was that he had engaged in, I haven't even said yet, that he was at the Capitol riot on January 6th, was indicted on, on charges related to that. Because of that, there had been a number of groups that had sought to have him removed from office under the idea, under the 14th Amendment, that people who have engaged in acts of insurrection against the government can't hold elected office. And so he has been removed from office. We'll see what happens with that. I feel pretty confident it'll be challenged. But it's sort of remarkable to me that it was that, the Capitol riot, and not these efforts subsequently to promote these conspiracy theories and to act on them that led to his house. It's interesting. You see all these attempts to get people disqualified from office. I think people have tried it with Marjorie Taylor Greene and with Madison Cawthorn based on the idea that they supported an insurrection. And it seems like it would never actually work, but it seems like it worked in this case. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a few mitigating factors here. One is that this was it's a county commission in Otero County, New Mexico, so the stakes are substantially lower. I think it didn't receive a lot of scrutiny in the way that Marjorie Taylor Greene's case did because it was a federal case. So I think those probably play a role and obviously we'll also see if it holds up. So pulling back a little, how did you take up the mantle here of being the guy who's going to go through all of these election fraud claims and debunk each of them one by one? I mean, you seem to have a great deal of patience. <laughs> yeah, you, you sort of cast me as maybe the biggest loser in American history. <laughs> Look, I come to it through math. I am a guy who's just sort of pays a lot of attention to math and numbers. And a lot of the claims that came at the outset were math-based, right? It was, there couldn't have been possibly this number of votes that were cast in Wisconsin on election night, yada, yada. Well, actually, of course it could, because you look at Milwaukee, and Milwaukee's got a lot of voters in it. So a lot, there was a lot of math to this. And what we've seen over the course of the past, whatever it's been, 22 months or so, has been a lot of efforts to try and use statistics and math to prove that something happened, even if there's no actual proof or evidence of fraud itself. So we see a lot of these sort of statistical analyses from these total hacks, like Dr. Douglas Frank, math teacher from Ohio, who's become infamous by coupling himself with Mike Lindell and promoting all these conspiracy theories that are sort of pretextually about mathematics. He claims to have found this six-degree polynomial, which proves that all the voting machines are rigged. And it's just I cannot say this flatly enough. It is absolute garbage that he basically uses Microsoft Excel to make these fancy curves and convince people who don't know very much about it that something untoward happened, right? I mean, it's using this sort of presentation of authority about understanding math and numbers to claim that the election was stolen. And since I have some experience of looking at these things and I can say, look, this is nonsense, just sort of over and over and over again, it comes up that there is an opportunity to 
use a basic familiarity with the objectivity of numbers to say, actually, this is garbage. I think that's such a fascinating and useful service because you're hitting on something here, which is so many of these attempts to prove the election was stolen. It's like, all right, here's the big evidence. And then it's a bunch of slideshows that don't really make any sense. But I think if emotionally you're someone who wants to feel the election was stolen, you can point to that and say, yeah, like you just got to watch this presentation at a Mike Lindell conference, something like that. What are some of the most ridiculous claims that you've debunked? I mean, I do want to say you're exactly right that the way to look at this and a lot of things in, in the Trump era, honestly, is that you start with the assumption, you start with the assumption of the election, and then you backfill the evidence, right? That happens over and over and over again in how Trump approaches politics. It very much is the case here. So the evidence can be swapped in and out because the evidence is important. They've already got the assertion that they believe. The most ridiculous, I mean, Doug, Doug Frank is up there because it's just, it's gotten so much traction. It's just flatly, patently, obviously false if you look at it at all. Antrim County is another one, Antrim County, Michigan, where essentially they sort of misregistered how they were recording votes when they're scanning things into the machines on election night. Antrim County is a red county. The, the initial results said that Biden won because things, basically sets of columns weren't lined up right. They very quickly went in, they fixed it. But this has become this massive conspiracy theory in part, again, because a loud voice, Matthew DiPerno, who now is running for attorney general in, in Michigan, elevated these claims because it suited his purposes, but something weird had happened in Antrim County. There's this essay by Lawrence Lessig from 2009, which I think is really, really informative about our modern era. And he says, essentially, he argues against transparency solely from the basis that if you provide people with a huge mountain of evidence, they can pick through it and cobble together whatever narrative they want to. And so that is what we see here in a lot of these things, is people want to believe, again, to my prior point, they want to believe the election was stolen. By focusing on voting machines or whatever it happens to be, or Antrim County, or whatever it is, people can cobble together a narrative that says what they want it to say. And so that's what we saw with Antrim County, which is absolutely ridiculous, very quickly debunked, but people still harp on it. And of course, you can go to the bamboo ballots in Arizona and all these other things that are also ridiculous. But I just think it's fundamentally these really dumb analyses of math that for me are personally grading <laughs> just based <laughs> on my predispositions. There seems to be sort of a, a personal offense that you're, that you're working from, like, <laughs> You're trying to resolve this kind of affront to mathematics. Yeah, I mean, it's dumb of me to admit this because then it makes it very easy to troll me. But for example, if you if you sit with a straight face and say to me, 2,000 mules made a convincing argument, I'm going to go apoplectic. I may have a stroke in front of you <laughs> just because it's so stupid and it shows no evidence whatsoever. It's offensive <laughs> to me that anyone would think that there's legitimacy to that terrible movie because there's just nothing proven. It. So yeah, things like that. Well, that's actually getting into my next question. And at the risk of giving you a medical incident, I have to ask you about 2,000 mules. It seems as though you sort of have become Dinesh D'Souza's arch nemesis. You maybe haunt his dreams because whenever he has kind of a new thing he's trying to prove about the election, you pop up and 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 quickly debunk it. Tell me the story of your relationship with 2,000 mules, how you got into it. I mean, it seems like it's been a very rich vein for you to mine. Yeah. So essentially what happened is back in March, the people who provided the ostensible evidence for 2,000 mules from a group called True the Vote, Catherine Engelbrecht, and this guy named Greg Phillips, they were at a hearing in Wisconsin in which they argued that this process had happened. And for those not familiar, the argument is that a number of nonprofits had collected ballots that were then transported by these so-called mules and dropped in various drop boxes around counties. Now, on the face of it, that doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't they just dump them all at once? Why wouldn't they throw them in a mailbox? Like, there's, there's all these reasons this doesn't make sense. But True the Vote claimed to have cell phone geolocation data which showed people moving between drop boxes and that. Way. So I saw at the time, I saw that hearing 
And I saw them referring to this thing that they were calling ballot trafficking, which is a term that essentially they invented. And so I wrote a piece like, hey, this is going to be the new thing, ballot trafficking. It's nonsense, yada, yada, yada. So then Dinesh D'Souza starts promoting this new film, 2000 Mules, based on this. And so I'm like, and I was champing at the bit. I was like, I wanted to see this movie because I want to see. I legitimately came to it like, what did they find? Did they find something? So I had written this piece about True the Vote, and Dinesh D'Souza then tweeted an excoriation of it saying, oh, I challenge you to debate me on it. Come see the film. And I responded very quickly. I was like, I was actually at dinner with my editor and I got that saw that tweet from Dinesh and I was like hey man I'm gonna take him up on this he's like go for it and so I responded to Dinesh I'm like yes let's do it send me this send me a link to the film and so it took a couple of weeks he ignored it for a while but finally I got to see the movie and it was just it was so transparently obvious that True the Vote had not only didn't have the goods but that they were lying about it that I just dove into it and so each time Dinesh tries to sort of reframe what the movie's about and I interviewed him I had a lengthy interview with with him in which he made very clear that he hadn't actually seen the evidence that it's not like he sat down and was presented with evidence these people were going around. He's totally taking Greg Phillips' word for it. Greg Phillips, who very infamously after the 2016 election claimed that millions of votes have been cast illegally without ever providing any evidence for it, that this kept coming up and that I kept having these Dinesh D'Souza trying to reframe it just gave me opportunities to be like, look, this is nonsense. And to keep reiterating, and it has had very, very little traction. <laughs> but what are you going to do? <laughs> I feel like this kind of gets at something which you see over and over with this election fraud stuff where it's like either the evidence is just these inscrutable charts, stuff like that, or it is there. there is sort of a mythical amount of evidence that is always being delayed. I mean, we've talked on the podcast about Greg Phillips and, oh, I'm going to pull the ripcord. Oh, 2000 yeah. Mules, that was the start. But the real cash is is just right around the corner. I mean, is that something you see a lot? Oh, sure. Mike Lindell and his caps. I mean, does Mike Lindell think that I just can't get over this? Like, he thinks he has evidence that like China changed votes. And it's like, dude, go to the FBI, man. What are you doing? Like, I just don't, I don't get how like he's, I realize that it's irrational, but like, what's the internal consistency where he thinks that he's on the right track here? It just makes no sense. But yeah, we see this all the time that there's always promise just over the edge. And Donald Trump did this all the time, right? He promised that he'd two weeks from now, he's going to do this or that or the other thing to prove that he was right. And basically just people forget about it. And one thing that you find, and you obviously have seen this a thousand times too, is that people just just, they don't evaluate what they're being presented with. They take it at face value. And the funny thing is that they, they come to you and say like, oh, you haven't looked at the evidence. It's like, no, son, I have looked at the evidence. I have actually reviewed what Mike Lindell is saying. I have looked at what Doug Frank is saying, and it's garbage. And maybe you should look at it. And then they say, I'm not going to trust the fake news. And they, this is how it works. <laughs> But I just wanted to ask you, do you think that as time goes on, as these things continue to get debunked, Jan 6 committee, all these things combined together, some things that Democrats are trying to do to debunk this in the eyes of folks who did buy into this voter support or voter fraud conspiracies, do you think there is anything that can genuinely dissuade somebody who is still on the 2020, it was a stolen election train at this point? You've seen any substantial amount of people be dissuaded or say, oh, well, maybe it wasn't actually stolen. So I have an (laughs) anecdote here. And that is when I was, I went to Scranton, Pennsylvania the weekend before the 2020 election, which I had done also before the 2016 election. I was talking to voters and I saw a number of people going to the Republican Party headquarters in Scranton and they'd come out with like lawn signs and stuff which is not what campaigns would want you doing. They want you talking to voters on the weekend before. And so I talked to a lot of these people and all of them said that they thought Donald Trump was going to win unless, unless fraud. And I talked to this one guy who said he was volunteering to poll watch on election day because he wanted to make sure the fraud didn't occur. And so I actually looked into it a few months afterward and I saw that he'd been interviewed by local he apparently this guy likes talking to the media, but he'd been interviewed by local newspaper or television station or something. And he said, hey, look, I didn't see anything. Nothing weird happened in my polling place. And so one would think 
You come into this thinking that fraud's going to occur. You take this extra step to go and make sure it doesn't. And then you watch and you see that it doesn't. Maybe then you go back and look at your priors and think, hey, man, maybe I was wrong. <laughs> maybe there isn't a lot of fraud. But then what happened is I went and looked at his Facebook. And sure enough, he's talking about how there's this great big conspiracy in other states it happens. And, and basically, he just sort of realigned his priors to exclude the evidence that he had had firsthand of seeing that there wasn't actually anything weird happening. And he still continued with his belief. And so I think that as long as there's any saliency or any importance to the idea that Donald Trump didn't win the election legitimately, which, of course, Donald Trump is trying to constantly stoke, it's going to be impossible for most of these people to convince them because they'll always, going back to this Lawrence Lessig point, they'll always be able to put together, pick out evidence to put together a narrative to suggest that the election was stolen. And that's what they all want to believe. You know, obviously, we're headed into the midterms now. I mean, what trends do you see in terms of these sort of election fraud counter narratives? I mean, are you anticipating that if Republicans don't have a blowout that we'll see this same kind of talk after November? Yeah, I mean, it really comes down to the extent to which Republicans are concerned about power, right? So Laura Loomer, who lost her primary in Florida, started claiming that the election was stolen from her. I mean, she's yeah, I, I got to be careful about getting sued here, but Laura Loomer is not a credible individual, broadly speaking. Very lawyerly description. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can see the email coming from the Washington Post lawyers right now. But look, no one in the Republican Party is like, yeah, Laura Loomer got robbed. In part, she was running against Republican. In part, this is obvious garbage. But it also didn't matter because the Republicans weren't worried about that, right? A lot of people forget back in 2018, the Senate race in Florida, Rick Scott was running against Bill Nelson, who was the incumbent, and had a very, very narrow lead after Election Day. And what Rick Scott started doing at that point in time was he started claiming that there had been fraud, that there were suspect ballots being counted in Broward County and other places. Donald Trump jumped on board. But Rick Scott really sort of set the template in recent years for, for these allegations. And he did so because he wanted to try and make people stop counting the ballots because he had a lead and he didn't want that lead to be eroded in Democratic counties. So we saw him elevating that claim even before Donald Trump was saying it in the same way about 2020, because he understood that this was a way to backstop Republican electoral power. Rick Scott is now, of course, the, the guy who's leading the Republican effort to retake the majority in the Senate. But it really shows that that's the trigger. The trigger is power. It is not necessarily evidence. I would just be curious, too. I cover Democrats and there's been some sort of talk that Democrats should be prioritizing attorney general's races as or secretary of state's races, rather, that Democrats should be prioritizing secretary of state's races as sort of the where the buck stops on any of these potential claims of voting fraud that could come up in future elections. In your space of watching folks that have been continuing to tout these theories to make these theories resurge every few days or minutes, it seems. Do you think that they have any emphasis on Secretary of State's races that people are paying attention to that as a potential we have to fight to get XYZ in office because they will crack down on the voter fraud? There very much is a an element of Trump supporters in the United States who believe that there needs to be some sort of instantiation in order to protect against voter fraud. I think there is a very real sentiment. I think there is also a very real effort by a lot of Republicans, somewhat cynically, to try and change voting rules to their advantage, leveraging that belief. Do I believe that there are, we have folks like Cleta Mitchell who'd worked with, an attorney who'd worked with Donald Trump in his efforts to overturn the election, who is now putting together this group that is aimed at providing poll checkers in order to prevent fraud. We'll sort of see what becomes of that. I think it's obviously a little disconcerting. Is there, however, a massive grassroots effort by Trump supporters to try and reshape 
how elections are administered. I mean, I know Steve Bannon's tried to put something together in that regard, but I don't know that there's a lot of Trump supporters who are really, really going out solely to cast the ballot for Secretary of State or Attorney General. I may be misunderstanding the question, but it just seems to me like the extent to which people care about politics beyond the immediate circle of Donald Trump, I'm not sure that there's a much of a long tail there. So, Philip, on another note, you recently ran the numbers on trying to figure out how many MAGA Republicans there were in light of Biden's speech describing them, MAGA Republicans specifically, as semi-fascist. How did you try to figure that out and what did you come up with? Yeah, I think this is really an important thing to consider because we hear a lot of, not just after Biden's speech last week, but just in general, there's a lot of this conflation between Trump supporters and half, right? And so it is categorically not the case that half the country are Trump supporters, A, from the standpoint of the fact that he lost by more than, it's not like he lost by one vote in 2020. It's not as though people who vote constitute the entirety of the country. There are all these indications right off the bat that not half the country are Trump supporters. And so I tried to look at who Biden categorized in that way. The groups of Republicans in particular, what they believed that the election was stolen, that political violence might sometimes be acceptable, that the generous defendants were patriots, things like that. How many Americans is that? And so I looked at the numbers and essentially comes down to about one in 10 Americans, or if you exclude kids, which probably makes sense, about one in eight adults are both Republicans or Republican-leaning independents and, and hold to those views. There are obvious limitations on this methodology here, which I can get into, or people can just read the article, which is probably easier. But the upshot is this. We're not talking about half the country here. We're talking about about an eighth of the country, which is a lot of people. And as we saw on January 6th, can be hugely problematic under the right circumstances. But it is not the case that Joe Biden, in who he was describing, was describing half the country. It's interesting because obviously the sort of semi-fascist thing has become really a rallying cry on the right, claiming that, as you said, they described half the country that he described half the country that way. Philip, in maybe happier news, you have a book coming out in January. Talk to me about that. What's that about? I do. So I have a book coming out in January. It's called The Aftermath. And what it does is it looks at the fact that the baby boom is finally starting to loosen its grip on the United States. And that comes out sounding pejorative, but it really isn't. I think people underestimate the scale of the baby boom. They underappreciate just how much of a massive shift in the American population it was. I've documented a lot of that in the book. Then I look at what it means that the baby boom, how the baby boom accrued power for itself, and what it means that that power, not only political power, also economic power, cultural power, is now shifting to other groups, primarily millennials. So it's sort of an exploration of that and what we can expect over the coming decades as a result. So as a millennial myself, what do I have to expect? I'm going to get some more money? What's going on? The main thing you can expect is that over the course of the next few decades, the baby boom will make up a smaller percentage of the voting block. We've already seen that even just in the transition from 2016 to 2020. One thing we're seeing is that baby boomers are making up a smaller portion of the labor pool, which is probably contributing to some issues with labor force participation over time. But they're leaving behind a lot of these things. We talk to people, when millennials talk about the things they're concerned about, you often hear about college debt, you almost always hear about housing. How does that get resolved? What happens in order to change those rules? And of course, a lot of those rules were set in place by baby boomers who bought houses and then held onto those houses for decades and lived there for a long time and then created systems to protect the value of their homes by reducing the number of additional houses that could be built, even as the population continues to expand. So there, there are all these after effects. I spoke with a lot of experts who evaluate politics and the economy and so on and so forth. It's obviously murky, just down to the point of we don't know how big the population is going to get. We do know this, though. The population is going to continue to become more diverse. It's going to be continue to get older as well, even after the baby boom 
is gone thanks to increases in longevity and things along those lines. And so the America, what America looks like in 2060 is probably going to be pretty dramatically different than even what it looks like now. Well, it sounds like a lot to explore. And Philip, I just want to thank you for the really the vital work you're doing on these election fraud things. When I see them, I think like, yeah, it's probably not true. It's probably not true what Dinesh D'Souza is saying, but I can't really nail it down. It's just kind of over my head math wise. So it's always great to be able to rely on your reporting. Well, that's very kind. I appreciate it. And obviously you do great work as well. And I'm happy to have this chance to talk to you. All right. Well, that's Philip Bump. He's a national correspondent for the Washington Post. His book, The Aftermath, is coming out in January. Philip, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Thanks. Okay, well, as we get into September, the end of a, a hot, hot summer, tell me what we have in fresh hell this week. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Th- things are staying hot here in Fresh Hell, in particular as we approach October, the spooky season. Yes, yeah, so this week in Fresh Hell, we're going to talk about two sometimes, I don't know if you want to call them aspiring comedians, once successful comedians in the case of one and, and now no longer. I'm talking, of course, about Proud Boys founder Gavin McGinnis and a guy named Owen Benjamin, who folks may remember ha- tried to have a compound in Idaho that went south. So these boys have been getting up to quite a bit, and now they're at odds. So here's the deal. So first of all, a few weeks back, Gavin McGinnis, once again, like I said, the founder of the Proud Boys, claims to no longer be involved with them. He was hosting his online talk show, Get Off My Lawn, and then suddenly it seemed like someone was barging into his office. He said, who's there at the door? Don't let him in. And then he started kind of talking off camera to the person saying, I'll get a lawyer. We'll talk about this later. And then he stepped off camera and never appeared again. And it just showed dead air for about another hour. So a lot of people, including me, thought, hey, I wonder if Gavin McGinnis got arrested, maybe by the FBI. Obviously, a lot of Proud Boys leaders are currently in jail facing sedition charges. So it didn't seem impossible to me that Gavin McGinnis would have gotten arrested. And then one of his minions, a guy named Josh Denny, who used to host a Food Network show and now hosts a show on the Gavin McGinnis website. Life comes at you fast, folks. But he tweets, yes, Gavin's been locked up. We got to free Gavin. Ursula, were you following this? Did you think maybe Gavin McGinnis had found himself in the Hooskow? I will admit, Gavin McGinnis was not one that was as much on my radar. He does look like quite the interesting character just off a preliminary Google search. Really does fit far right guy vibe. Well, and he's one of the more respectable people I cover. So there was a lot of debate. There was a lot of questioning. Did Gavin get arrested? And like I said, Josh Denny said, yes, he did. I will say a lot of right wing websites said it very explicitly. The post millennial said, yes, Gavin got arrested on air. I asked the U.S. Attorney's Office here in D.C., which handles January 6th. People asked the U.S. Attorney in New York. They asked where his show is based. They asked the NYPD. And really, no one said they were involved in it. So increasingly, it started to look like one of two things. Either Dark Brandon had black bagged Gavin McGinnis and sent him to a CIA black site, or it was all fake. And so I have to say, as the days went on, it increasingly started to look like it was fake. But people were still kind of trying to keep up this ruse. Gavin was laying low. I should mention this is kind of key. He has a comedy tour coming up with the aforementioned Food Network host. So it seems like maybe an attempt to get media attention. But then enter... Owen Benjamin. Now, Owen Benjamin is an anti-Semitic, racist, quote-unquote comedian. He used to have a relatively mainstream career. He was engaged at one point to Christina Ricci of Yellow Jackets fame. And now, however, he's really lost the plot, I guess. little background on Owen Benjamin. His fans call themselves Bears. They raised money so he could buy a plot of land in Idaho called Beartaria. Then Owen, when they said, okay, all right, time for us all to move to Beartaria and have our community, he said... Oh, no, I think this will just be for my family. (laughs) Thank you very much. 
Ursula, have you ever thought of moving to a compound in Idaho? I have not. I am from Florida. The cold is not quite for me. I would say one thing I was thinking about is that it would be interesting if Gavin took the route, perhaps the reverse route of his colleague to Food Network and did like a white supremacist cooking show, just like bland potatoes and chicken all throughout is all I can imagine. This is an interesting idea. We'll pass it along to the folks at Censored.tv. So that's kind of laying the stakes here. So we got Bertaria. But Owen is increasingly angry as his own comedy career is sidelined because of his racist, anti-Semitic remarks. He's kind of turned on people who once might have been his friends. He's obsessed with pointing out how short Joe Rogan is, for example. So after the Gavin McGinnis quote-unquote arrest, Owen texts him and he says, you know, I should say here, everything I'm relaying is sort of Owen's account. So to make of that what you will. He texts him and he says, hey, like, did you really get arrested? Are you really in the clink? And Gavin says, no, it's a prank. And then this angers Owen because there's been this idea that the founder of the Proud Boys was not only arrested, but that he was he had disappeared, had concerned a lot of other right wing paranoiacs who sort of feared that they they might be next. Maybe they would come and pick up the other third degree Proud Boys. And the other thing here is that, like, as I mentioned, some Proud Boys are really getting arrested. Right. I mean, as this whole ruse was taking place, a Proud Boy was sentenced to I think 55 months in jail related to January 6th. So the idea that Gavin would think it was kind of a big lark to fake your arrest started to wear on some Proud Boys as well. So Owen says, look, guys, I talked to Gavin. It's all fake. And then Gavin texts him and says, you spilled the beans. We are done. And I think the idea of spilling the beans, these guys doing their little like far right paramilitary operations, but talking like little kids, I found a little evocative. So basically, Gavin McGinnis has just finally reemerged. Uh, he's not acknowledging that he faked his arrest or really discussing anything about it. But Owen Benjamin's reemergence in the news had me checking, seeing what's up with Bertaria. And I have to say, he held this event over the weekend, over Labor Day weekend, called Bear Fest. Now, keep in mind, these are the folks who are supposed to be bringing back a sort of Western, read white sense of community. There's a big, like, back to the land movement here. So for $80, you could go to a field. You could go camp in a field in Missouri, notably not at the Idaho compound all these folks funded for, and Owen did not come. He said, well, maybe I'll come if there's 5,000 people, which is a pretty rude thing to do to your fans, I would say. A lot of these people have taken the bear thing as part of their identity. They have names like Skillet Bear and Fine Art Bear. And one of the speakers was named Peacemaker Bear. So a lot of these people, they really see themselves as these bears. If there was a Fever Dreams Festival, I think you would assume that I would be there, but it seems like it kind of blew them off. Now, Ursula, here in the document here, we have a picture of the event, which was centered around a giant tug of war. And I say giant, I mean, it's about a dozen people. So how many people would you say are at this event? I would say maybe 100 if you're counting the crowd in the background. As far as, as how much it sounds like it was hyped up, giving Fire Festival sort of a letdown. <laughs> That is a great point. That is a great point. I will say, you mentioned this in the past, I have seen Mid-Atlantic Bassetown festivals bigger than this. This is just kind of a couple people in a field. This one looks like a big flop. But I looked at the rundowns of it, and people just loved this thing. They were like, oh, leaving Bearfest really hurt my heart. Oh, I wanted to stay with all my friends. And, and you know, you mentioned other festivals. Some of the, the hype said Burning Man is the satanic version of this. So this is kind of like good bear-themed Burning Man. They were really, really into the tug of war. I saw that really repeated over and over. All you need for a tug of war, folks, long rope, long rope in a field. Don't need to pay 80 bucks and drive to Missouri to do that. What's the takeaway here? Well, sometimes I like to check in on our 
right-wing men's clubs. Certainly, I think there are some crossover here. I think there are some Proud Boys who are Bears and vice versa. But this growing feud between the Bears and the Proud Boys, I fear that we may be seeing a fissure here, that we may soon see a fight between the Proud Boys and the Bears. And I hope I don't live to see that day, because who knows all of the kind of guys driving, wearing Oakleys, ranting Instagram live streams that would ensue. So Ursula, you and I did not go to Bear Fest. What would your bear name be? And, and so you want to keep... It's something that kind of I, that is close to your heart or so you could be like gator bear, something related to your identity. God, this is actually very ironic because my name means little bear. Ursula means little bear. And I was named that because it meant little bear. Oh, my gosh. You are ready made to join this group. They were going to call their compound Ursa Rio. So, I mean, you would fit right in. Yeah, I don't even have to change my name. I can just go by the Greek origin, show up as a little bear, fit right in. Okay, well, you kind of blew me out here. I feel like I'm going to look like a chump if I join the bears now. But the I like making salsa, maybe salsa bear. Kind of, it like adds a little flavor. There's all kinds of things to pull from. But I will say these guys, like, they really love their names and they love referring to each other. That's Coddington bear. As I said, that's skillet bear. I guess at least this kind of right-wing cult-like movement isn't marching on the Capitol, as far as I know. I don't think any bears were implicated in Jan 6, so I think I've got to give the edge here in Proud Boys versus the Bears to the Bears. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 